with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 208th program of Think Again, a program of Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation working for social change for over 25 years. Jacques isn't here today, but I have a wonderful guest who we just heard from briefly then, (laughs) joining the program by phone, who will be talking about the latest proposed gambling reforms, Charles Livingston. Dr. Charles Livingston is an Associate Professor in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, Monash University. Charles has a long-standing particular interest in gambling policy reform and the politics, regulation and social impacts of poker machine gambling, which is why we have him on the program today. Welcome to Think Again, Charles. Good morning. Good morning to you. So I should add for our listeners that Charles and I go back um, a long way as fellow researchers and activists in relation to poker machines. In the late 1990s, I think starting with the Kennett era probably, and well into the early 2000s. Um, Charles, just to give our listeners some context, can you talk a bit about the introduction of computerised poker machines in the 1990s and some of the grassroots organising sorry, some of the grassroots organising that you led at the time. Sure. So in 1992, the then Turner government uh, legislated to allow EGMs, electronic gambling machines, or pokies, as they're more commonly known as, into Victoria. Now, this was a reaction to the fact that the state had been through some financial uh, disasters, the collapse of the state bank, for example, uh, the collapse of the Pyramid Building Society in Geelong, etc. So <clears throat> there was a lot of damage done to the budget. And as is really the case in Australia, uh, the states all introduced gambling one after another at around the same time because of what we call the vertical fiscal imbalance. So it was really the tax deficit between the Commonwealth and the states. The states have lots of bills and no taxing powers, really. And mm-hmm. so poker machines and gambling generally was sold to the states as a way of overcoming this problem. Uh, And to a certain extent, it has provided revenue. The problem is, of course, that the harm that it imposes on the community is much greater. And this became apparent pretty quickly. Once uh, these uh, machines were rolled out across the state, uh, we ended up with them firstly being concentrated in areas of socioeconomic disadvantage. So in the case of Melbourne, that meant the western suburbs, the northwestern suburbs, and the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. So Maribyrnong, Brimbank, uh, Dandenong, etc., were the places where these machines were concentrated quite unreasonably. Mm. And for a long time, it was very difficult to get data. So um, I was at the time working with Maribyrnong Council, which became very concerned about this issue because it was clear that a lot of machines were focused in that community. And of course, Maribyrnong has become a little bit more uh, gentrified, I guess you could say, these days around Yarraville particularly, but 
uh, in those days it was still very much a, a very working class community and what we saw was a lot of machines that were really having a massive impact on people's wherewithal and ability to, uh, you know, to get by. So uh, the council itself, to its great credit, uh, started to agitate quite strongly, particularly during the Kennet era when, uh, you know, originally Kennet, you know, Kennet inherited the poker machines and the gambling regime <clears throat> that had been introduced by the Kerner government, but he supercharged it and we were well on the way to getting 45,000 machines. Uh, but what, you know, I think what happened was a lot of people, in, initially in a fairly disorganised way, but eventually getting their act together in a sense, uh, were able to, you know, do basic research, find out where the machines were. Uh, and that, of course, attracted a lot of interest. And I think in the end, governments of both sides were embarrassed into curtailing the expansion of the pokey business. So originally supposed to be 45,000 machines in Victoria, um, but it was retained at the turn of the century at 30,000 in the election that the Labor Party won, I think, in 1999. Mm. And, uh, you know, a, a bunch of reforms have been put in place ever since as a, as a consequence of that sort of action, which I know you were quite involved in, Jennifer, but uh, many mm. people were at the time because it was clearly a real social problem that we were importing for no good reason and um, you know, imposing enormous harm on the most disadvantaged parts of our community. Yeah, not much of a way to solve your revenue problem as a state. Um, and as you say, drawing from the from the even from the beginning, from the early evidence, the taxation revenue was being drawn from low income areas, and also, of course, um, because of the problems with the machines, uh, the money was being drawn from people's actual addictions. So, so yep. you, you you did mention the problems with the poker machines and their impacts. So. Can you talk a bit about that and and whether you think they continue to this day if they're still... Ha I think you know the answer, but please elaborate, Charles. Yeah, so the, the problem with electronic gambling machines is that they're extremely good at inducing addiction. So traditional one-armed bandits uh, from the olden days, the sort of 1950s, 60s-style machines that required you to pull a lever. There are a set of mechanical reels, usually three. They were all the same size. They all had the same number of symbols on them. Uh, and you had at least some sense of uh, what you were getting into, and they were slow, and they relied on coins, usually 20-cent pieces being slotted into them. Um, now, with the introduction of fully electronic gambling machines, they changed enormously. Although they superficially appear the same, they appear to have spinning reels, um, you know, you push buttons these days instead of pulling levers, but essentially they present as very similar to the old-style machines. But they're much, much, much more clever. So uh, because they have the ability to have a different number of symbols on each reel and a different number of winning symbols on each reel, um, because they include tricks uh, that include, you know, deliberate near-misses, losses, disguises, wins... Uh, and so on, and because they have the ability to allow people to bet on multiple lines, up to you know hundreds in some cases, it's very easy for them. Even a one-cent machine can easily be a five-dollar machine if you want it to be by configuring it accordingly. So mm -hmm. what we get is we get a lot of reinforcement. The reason these things are addictive is because they use two basic principles. One is operant conditioning. This is a system whereby if you provide a series of rewards which are unpredictable, then animals, including humans, tend to persist in their behaviour 
because mm. they can't predict when they're going to get a pellet in the case of a bird or a rat or a wind in the case of a person using a slot machine. Uh, and then we have what, was, what is called classical conditioning, which is the uh, association with this sort of reward of a sound and uh, images and so on. So if you look at a poker machine, they combine operant and classical condition perfectly. Mm, yeah. uh, and, and what that means, of course, is that they, they are very highly addictive. And when you add in the bells and whistles that are associated with fully electronic machines, as I said, losses disguises win, which is where you might bet $5 uh, because you bet on multiple lines on the machine, but you only get a win on one line. That win might be very modest. It might only be a dollar or less. But the machine will still react as though you'd have a big win. Yeah. So that also provides conditioning. And what those uh, techniques do is they effectively double the amount of reinforcement, if not more, associated with the machine. So they're highly addictive. Uh, and they're also very appealing to people who are under some form of stress or, you know, in an anxious situation or indeed with mental health problems because they induce a flow of dopamine, which is a neurochemical that makes you feel good. Uh, and whilst you're using the machine, you have this sort of more or less constant flow of dopamine because, as you know, you can use a machine once in Victoria at the moment, once every 2.14 seconds. So <clears throat> what that means is you've got this continuous flow of dopamine, which doesn't occur anywhere else, certainly not in nature, uh, and that induces a high level of dependency because it makes you feel good. Yeah. So if you're in a situation where you're stressed and anxious or have some sort of mental health issue, it's a sort of form of self-medication and become very highly addictive. Yeah, people, I've spoken to quite a few people over the years who've got hooked on the machines and all at the very beginning said, this is so boring, how could anyone even play these? And they put a few yeah. coins in and, you know, they're meeting, you know, some family members in a pub and they put a few coins in, they do it a few times in a row and that to and they become addicted and then there are people who talk about going into the zone so if their life if there are terrible things happening in their life they go into this zone and of course when they later come out of the zone they're financially a lot lot worse off you know yep. and, and as we know both no child so there's been so many family breakdowns and people losing their house their relationships, their families, uh, and, you know, some killing themselves. So it's, yes. it's pretty terrible. Um, so, Charles, um, let's go to the reforms being proposed. Um, as I understand it, they include, one, making gamblers set a spending limit that they have yep. to stick to, two, venues closing for six hours um, from 4am to 10am, which is forces gamblers to take a break because there yep. are people who will... When they're hooked, they'll gamble around the clock. Um, and also slowing down the speed at which you can put the money in the machines and I think while also reducing how much you can put in at a time. So yeah. so there's quite a few things. Um, what do you think of the reforms and do you think they'll be effective? they would be effective if they come in? All right, well, the one that's most likely to be effective is what the government is calling carded play, which is effectively a, key, a pre-commitment system. So... In Victoria at the moment, we have a pre-commitment system, but it's a voluntary system, so the uptake of it is very low. And mostly, that I think, is because uh, people associate that sort of system with being a quote-unquote problem gambler, that is to say someone who's addicted. So they think, I'm not addicted, I don't need that. Uh, and, it, of course, it also means that you will limit how much you can gamble on at any one time. Uh, 
So it's been very ineffective at curtailing harm, although those few people who use it do say that it has been beneficial. Now, I think my understanding of the plan is that this will involve converting the Your Place system to a universal uh, system which people are required to use in order to use their machine. So that means you register for a card, you set up um, an account, so to speak, and on that account you specify how much you're prepared to win over a particular period of time. It's a little unclear as to whether the government is going to impose a statutory limit on that. So in Tasmania, which is introducing a similar system next year, uh, they have mandated a limit of $100 a day, $500 a month, or $5,000 a year for people to use poker machines. And those seem like reasonable limits. I mean, they're broadly consistent with the limits that were put in place in Norway in uh, the late 2000s when they introduced such a system. Mm. But nonetheless, we have a lot of detail to see on this. But at its core, that is almost certainly going to be very effective. It will allow people uh, who who uh, have it are in the process of developing an addiction or indeed before they even develop an addiction to make sensible choices away from the machine mm. about how much they want to gamble. The problem, of course, is once people get in front of the machine um, and get caught up in this dopamine rush, it's very hard for them to make anything approaching a rational decision. So what that means is they will, unfortunately, tend to go through everything they can, everything they have, uh, and then some, uh, in pursuit of this continued dopamine high. So what this does is it lets people set a limit and allows them to manage their gambling in a much more rational and coherent way. Mm. And even, you know, as you know, Jennifer, even people who have developed quite an addiction will often tell you that they wish they had a tool that could make them stick to the limits they want to stick to. Mm, so and the other, mm? well, quickly, the further advantage of this is it will allow for the first time for an effective self-exclusion system. So... What that means is if you decide that you don't want to gamble on slot machines anymore uh, and you've had enough of it, then you can set yourself a zero limit or hand back your car. So you simply won't be able to use the machines in Victoria anymore. And that would allow a lot of people a lot of respite. At the moment, the pre-commitments, sorry, the self-exclusion systems rely on uh, a small passport size photograph stuck behind the venue counter. And it's completely ineffective. So, you know, there's a couple of major advantages to that system. Mm. So it's a pretty much a thumbs up if it comes in. And, of course, um, I think Dan Andrews rather alarmingly said, oh, we're going to consult with the industry, <laughs> which I, yes. I looked at that and I thought, well, that's a bit unbalanced. Why aren't you also consulting with fi- Financial Counselling Victoria and, um, you know, Gamblers Help um, and Addiction Support Services? Why would you just say I'm just going to talk to the industry? Well, I, th- I mean, I suppose he would say that, wouldn't he, because he wants to um, keep them on side. They are, after all, fairly powerful players, whether we like it or not. Mm. I think the real problem is, of course, there's a long tendency in this business to think that the industry are sort of neutral players in it. They don't have a vested interest, whereas they are amongst the most avaricious uh, and pernicious operators in our economy. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to look at an example of um, you know political economy in action, if it's look at the gambling industry because it creates effectively nothing except profit and produces nothing except misery. So. Yeah. You know, I think there's a there's a lot there's a lot of arguments to say that they should be treated the same way the tobacco industry is treated, and that is 
You tell them what you plan to do. You consult them to the extent necessary to enable them to do what you want them to do, and otherwise they don't have a say in it. Now, that's a minority view. Mm. Obviously, governments uh, that are regulating industries feel a need to consult with them, and I can understand that. But I think what we need, as you say, is much more consultation with affected people and others who have um, some you know, perspective on this yeah. uh, in order to design a good system, one that actually does what it's intended to do. Yeah. I mean, I think industry involvement is likely to water it down as much as possible and for as long as possible. Well, they don't because the profits are tied to gambling addiction. And if you reduce gambling addiction, you reduce profits. And whenever I hear we, ne- you know, we need to do more research or consult more, I no. feel like a lot of gambling researchers and I hear you laugh is, you know what, the research has been there for a long time. We know that these are harmful products uh, yep. that cause addiction. So um, they're, a, they're a harmful product. And if we took a um, health promotion prevention approach, you wouldn't even have uh, such a harmful product as it is right now uh, in, the pop- in our communities. Um, but as you say, um, um, you started off talking about pokies being introduced to solve the state's revenue problems and of course we're in that state again now and and when I heard when I saw Andrews Premier Andrews saying oh yeah well you know, it'll be a bit of a you know process we'll consult the industry it reminded me of St Augustine um, Lord make me ch- chased but not yet <laughs> so on that note we might go to some music we'll come back to you um, Charles uh, we've yeah. got blow up the pokies by the Whitlam's uh, this song was, just to give a bit of background, this song was released in 2000. Uh, the music was by Greta, I think, Gerties, but the lyrics were written by the lead singer of the Whitlam's, Tim Friedman, after a band member committed suicide because of his struggles uh, with poker machine addiction. There was the stage Two red lights and a dodgy PA Rod planks way back then And it's strange here again Here again And I wish I'd shine you right words To make you feel better Walk out of this place And defeat them in your secret battle Show So long to earn You can double up or you can burn You can burn And I wish I'd shine you the right words To make you feel better Walk out of this place And defeat them in your secret battle Show
You're listening to Think Again, 3CR, 855 AM on your dial, 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Today I'm talking with Charles Livingston about the huge problem we have with poker machines, as well as, well as other forms of um, gambling that involve continuous gambling. We've been talking about proposed reforms to make poker machine gambling safer. I'd like now like to go a bit uh, broader with some um, ideas from Alan Kohler, who wrote a piece in the New Daily on the 20th of July titled Regulate Gambling. Uh, sorry, regulate gambling as a drug of addiction, not an industry. So, Charles, what do you think of um, Alan Kohler's argument that we need to move, I suppose, gambling regulation from the states and territories and and take a national approach? Look, I don't think there's any doubt that a national regulator would probably be a more effective way of introducing at least uniform regulation. I mean... The regulations vary enormously between the states and territories. Uh, And, um, you know, not just with slot machines, pokies, it's also, um, you know, there are variable rules between the states as regards uh, online gambling and other forms of gambling as well. So I think it's it's clear that the states, for whatever reason, are simply too vested. They have a much too strong vested interest in uh, the way in which gambling is operating. You only have to look at the casino industry and the disgusting and disgraceful errors that they uh, mm. committed over the last... Errors, well, crimes, really, over the last 20 years. So I think, really, what, what we need is a national system. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the recent House of Representatives inquiry into online gambling published its report a couple of weeks ago, and that called for a national regulator, particularly for online gambling, and that's a good place to start. So there, there is now a, a uniform code of conduct, which is effectively um, what's called a consumer protection framework in place with a few more bits to go in. And that's gone a long way towards probably regulating online gambling in Australia. Much better than, I think, much better than terrestrial, that is, pokies and so on, have been regulated. But that's only for that aspect of the gambling business. Um, I think Cole is right to say this is a drug of addiction and it should be treated as such. I think the hard part is to get from where we are now to that stage, and that will take quite a lot. I think Mr Kohler also wrote, um, if not in that article, at least recently, that there needs to be a way out for those who currently operate machines. And I think one of the big problems we've got is that they've become so lucrative uh, for so many operators at the pub and club level that dissuading them from continuing with them is not easy. I mean, they, they rely... You know, clubs in New South Wales rely on up to 80% of their revenue comes from poker. So a huge amount of money that they, if they abandoned them, they wouldn't have. So, you know, we need a strategy to wean them off that dependency. Now, they say they're moving in that direction, but there's not a huge amount of evidence of that. And certainly the big hotel chains like the Endeavour Group, uh, hotels, etc., showing no interest in weaning themselves off the poker revenue. The opposite, in fact, is the case. So... Whilst I think, you know, Alan Kohler's arguments make a lot of sense, the problem is how do we get from where we are now uh, to the situation he he suggests. Yeah, and I and I guess if you have clubs like as we think of community clubs, like you know your child's footy club or something like that, if you have clubs that are so reliant on 
um, you know, millions of dollars of pokey machine revenue across them, um, you wonder what sort of clubs are they? Are they are they a gambling business or are they a club? I mean, if if they're going to collapse without community support and community involvement, are, what sort of clubs are they? Well, I think this is a really pertinent question. I think if you look at local clubs, uh, particularly bowls clubs or RSL clubs that in the past have had poker machines, I think the lesson I certainly learned early on was that they became all-consuming uh, and that managing the pokies became the prime pursuit of the people on the committee. And many of them were not people who had a lot of expertise in management and certainly not managing that sort of money. Mm. And so for them, it became quite onerous. And I think that's still a problem. I mean, if you look at the RSLs, I mean, one of the big problems the RSL now faces is that it's uh, certainly the biggest not-for-profit operator of pokies in Victoria mm. uh, and a very big one nationally. Uh, but it's, 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 you know, responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, I just don't think uh, that's their core business. And many, many other veterans uh, who have sort of called out the RSL for neglecting their duties towards veterans argue that this is because they are so focused on poker machine business that they don't, they, you know, they lose sight of what it is they're intended to do. Yeah. So... I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's certainly a big problem. Yeah, and there's a um, few exceptions. Sorry, I just wanted to throw in a plug for Coburg RSL, which is a great community club yeah. that doesn't rely on pokies. <laughs> yes. I mean, I was just going to add, one of the interesting trends in the last few years has been a number of AFL clubs in Victoria, including Geelong, Collingwood, the Melbourne Football Club and others, had uh, the Western Bulldogs had quite a reliance on poker machine revenue. Uh, and one by one, they came to the view that it was damaging their brand, their reputation, mm. uh, and they got rid of them. Now, you know, they sold them on to other buyers in the business, which is, I guess, what you do. You can't just give away your assets if you're running an organisation, but uh, they sold them and got rid of them because they saw them as being harmful to their business. Mm. Now, whether that was because they were distracting them from their core business or whether it was because they were very mindful of the reputational harm, um, you know, it's half a dozen or one and six together, but my sense is it's a combination of both factors. And uh, what, it, what it means is that if you're a football club that's trying to appeal to a, a family-oriented um, market, which it is, of course, then... Uh, having the pokies is not a good way to keep keep that keep those people on side, and increasingly that seems to be the way a lot of businesses and, and uh, clubs are thinking. Which is great. So we are um, having to wind up. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we do let you go, Charles? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think you know any listeners who are interested in this topic um, and want to have a say about it, I, I strongly urge you to contact your local members of parliament, regardless of their political. And tell them you really strongly support the introduction of pre-commitment, and it should be done without industry interference. I think that's a really strong message that the government needs to hear. That would and be I great. would urge people who support these reforms to get behind them because they will make a huge difference to our community. They'll take away a really substantial degree of avoidable harm, mm-hmm. uh, and God knows we need to try and avoid every possible harm we can these days. I would hope. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I think that's a really good idea. Let your local state MP know that this matters to you and to get behind gambling reform. 
get yeah. it moved along. So thanks so much for joining us today on Think Again, Charles. It's been very illuminating, as it always is when you speak on this topic. And also thanks for your very impressive, persistent and dedicated research and activism on this issue. Um, there's two probably public figures I recognise coming up from time to time, Tim Costello and you, <laughs> who I recognise from the early 1990s being active on this issue. So thank you so much for your persistence. And um, it definitely doesn't get a fraction of the coverage in the media that it should. So... Um, on to, if if um, people want help with gambling problems, they could ring Gambler's Line one eight double zero eight five eight eight five eight. Um, for activists, I think Charles' suggestion is great. Contact your local state MP. There also is um, the Alliance for Gambling Reform nine 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 seven three seven two and. Uh, there's also a few Borderlands events coming up, which I'll quickly spruik. Um, Borderlands Cooperative is holding a series of conversations around alternative economics or social issues and alternative economics on, let's see, we are running out of time, but maybe I'll fill you in on those next week. But the first one is First Nations People, Truth, Treaty and Voice with Alistair Thorpe and Yin Paredes, Thursday, 7th of September, 730 to 9 p.m. We'll now go to Milkumana by King Stingray. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.